This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, today I've got a special guest on the podcast. Her name is Catherine Glenn Foster. She is the president and CEO of Americans United for Life. That is AUL for short. She got her law degree from Georgetown and has spent, uh, you know, essentially her entire career working for the cause of life. And I actually want to read this little snippet from her bio because I think it will help you understand kind of what she does and how AUL operates. So this is directly from their website. AUL's legal strategists have been involved in every pro-life case before the U.S. Supreme Court since Roe v. Wade. AUL is the pioneer of the state-based model legislative strategy, which works to save lives today while undermining the so-called reliance in interests adopted by the Supreme Court in Planned Parenthood v. Casey, the false idea that women rely on abortion to succeed in American life. Under Foster's leadership, AUL pursues and refines a mother-child strategy that looks at the interests and vulnerabilities of both, protecting them from abortion industry abuses. So earlier this year, and this is when she really kind of, you know, came on my radar because she went viral because she absolutely destroyed Democrat House of Representatives member from Maryland, a guy named Jamie Raskin during a House committee on the judiciary hearing called Revoking Your Rights, the Ongoing Crisis in Abortion Care Access. So this this happened after the leaked draft decision from Alito by Politico, and this was before the Roe v. Wade decision. But I mean, this clip is the main reason why I know that she exists and that AUL exists. And so we, we got her on the show. I reached out to her that day, the day I saw the video. But on this podcast, we kind of talk about how she got into life, you know, her reaction to the leak uh, from Politico, uh, the reaction to the Dobbs decision being handed down. But most importantly, like Roe being dead, what do we do now? What should the focus be on now? And then we kind of got her take on how to engage a lot of pro-abortion arguments. So you're going to hear her engage in a similar way that I've done on previous episodes. But then one very important part of the uh, podcast, I asked her about the criminalization of everyone in the abortion process, because there are currently no laws on the books in any state that allow for criminalization of anybody other than the doctor that performs the abortion. So not for the woman seeking the abortion, the, you know, boyfriend that knocked her up or the husband that's, you know, the wanting her to do this or the family members, the people that dropped her off. Nobody else is being brought up on these charges. I obviously vehemently disagree with that, but she's going to give you her opinion on that. So guys, I had a lot of fun with her today. It was a lot of great information, but I don't want to keep her from you any longer. So without further ado, let's get into it. Catherine Glenn Foster, welcome to Undaunted Life of Man's podcast. Pleasure to be here. I'm happy to have you on because as I said in the introduction, you went viral a few weeks ago and then you came on my radar, but we got a lot of ground to cover before we get to that. And I'm sure you've been asked about that a million times, but we will get there. So in a generic, easy place to start, let's start 30,000 foot view. What kind of got you into this overall fight in terms of the life issue? Yeah. I mean, for me, it's, it's personal. Um, it's personal because when I was 19 years old, I had an abortion. Um, I found out that I was pregnant right after Christmas break. I got back to college thought I was sick, went to the health center and they said, you know what, just to be sure before we give you these meds, um, let's just make sure you're not pregnant. I'm 19. I think I'm invincible. I'm like, why would you, why would you even ask me that? Of course I'm not pregnant. Um, but I took the test. It came back positive and, um, and everything changed. You know, I just, uh, I didn't even know how to react. Um, uh, I don't think that the, the workers there at the clinic knew how to react either. Um, you could see in their eyes that they were thinking something but they didn't say it. I don't know what that was, but they just, they didn't, 
say anything supportive or offer resources or anything. They just said, if you need to make a call, there's the phone. Um, so I called my then boyfriend. I said, <laughs> I just took a test and his response was underwhelming. Um, he just said, you know, okay. And that was pretty much it. And so I was left to just Google by myself um, that night and find out, you know, basically pregnant, what do I do? And, um, and now you get pregnancy centers if you Google that, but at the time you just got abortion clinics. And so I didn't know what to do. I didn't know where to turn. I didn't know about any resources. I was scared to tell my mom. She'd been a single mom most of my childhood. I'm an only child. Um, and so I, um, I just made an appointment and thought, okay, I'll, I'll get more information. I'll see what to do. And so I went there and from the time I walked through those doors, nothing was the same and nothing was, um, nothing was supportive. Nothing was empowering. You know, you just, you ask questions and they don't give you answers and they push you off. And is this assembly line process? They do an ultrasound. They have to, to make sure that, you know, that they know, you know, you are in fact pregnant and how far along you are, what procedure, make sure it's not ectopic. Um, but they don't let you see it. I even asked, I said, you know, <laughs> I don't know what I want here. I'm trying to make a decision. Can you just turn the screen towards me? And they said, no, um, it was against procedures and just sent me on to the next room. And then um, finally I'm lying on the abortion table and, um, and I, I just knew it was wrong. I knew I couldn't go through with it. Um, and so I said, keep the money, whatever, just, you know, let me up. It's wrong for me. Um, and they didn't let me, they called for help. They called for backup and ended up holding me down and, um, and forcibly aborting my child. Um, from that point forward, I didn't really know what to call it, but I knew I was against whatever that was. Um, didn't know there was a pro-life movement and my best friend in like seventh grade had been pro-life, but that's all I knew. Um, and so from that point forward, I, I knew that that was wrong. About a month later, I'm a mama's girl. I, I told my mom, I let her know what had, um, what had happened. And she was so supportive and helped get me counseling and just so loving. But, um, but it was, um, it was a long period of healing until finally I was, um, I would just say called by God to go to law school. And, um, I didn't know why, but, um, but it was during orientation that it was just, it became crystal clear to me, you know, just, it was on my heart, you know, you're supposed to help women like you, you're supposed to try to help make sure that no other woman is in a position like you were just alone, unsupported, no ideas, no options, no real choice, just stuck in the abortion pipeline. And so the abortion pipeline, let's talk a little bit more about that. And then we need to talk about, obviously talk about Dobbs and talk, talk about some of the work that you're doing. So that's the story I've heard from a lot of people is like you have now, there are a lot of women that, you know, their, their abortions are repeat abortions. It's like 40, 45% of abortions are repeat abortions. So I don't think most of these women that are pretending like they didn't know what was happening, that that's necessarily accurate, but there are people that get in the position where you're in, where it's like, you have some douchebag that's just like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what you should do. And you don't feel like you can talk to mom or dad. Is part of the the problem, Catherine, that we don't have these discussions beforehand, right? Because I'm I'm an abstinence only type of person, but then there are people that obviously go outside of that and make their own decisions, as you did, as millions and millions of people do in this country all the time. But there's a lot of these discussions to where it's like kids default to the internet or they default to idiots on social media because they don't have anyone they can talk to. There's not a strong man in their life or strong woman in their life or, or a pastor or a coach or anybody that they feel like they can talk to before. It's just like, 
going right into the pipeline. Do you feel like that's getting better? Is that still kind of a main struggle? Kind of hop in wherever you want. Yeah. Um, lot to unpack there. It, I, I think it's, it's better in some ways we're talking about abortion more people are at least aware of it. And the more people know what abortion is and what it does, um, the more supportive they are of life. Culturally, if we're talking about broader cultural issues, I think we still have those same problems. People are more aware than they were of pregnancy centers, but they all end of abortion, but they also are hearing a lot from mainstream media, just outright lies saying that the pregnancy centers are are going to lie to you or like trick you when pregnancy centers are there staffed by volunteers there to distribute diapers and you know, baby formula and cribs and car seats and and provide job training and um, and emotional support and all of it, whether you choose life or choose abortion, no matter what your path is. Pregnancy centers are there to help and walk with you through that baby's life. We're not even just talking about to birth. We're talking about, you know, a few years in, maybe 18 years, Mm -hmm. those pregnancy centers are there to help that young woman um, and that family. In fact, I want to really quickly share with you because, um, because I think this, this story would really interest your listeners. Um, I was down there in Florida, um, like in November, I was speaking at a couple of pregnancy center banquets and I met a man who runs the men's ministry at this pregnancy center. And he was just, he was on fire. He was amazing. Um, he had an abortion in his past, you know, he was in a relationship where the the young woman had an abortion. And so he had a real heart for this. This is his dedication. And he would share that when young men would come into that, that pregnancy center, um, you know, a lot of times what they do is they'll, they'll separate the young woman and the young man for just a couple of minutes. You know, when I was, when I was going through the abortion, they just, they separated us. Um, there was no contact. I'm like back alone for an hour plus. Um, not like that in a pregnancy center, you know, they keep everyone together. Cause a lot of times that young man, you know, he recognizes he's a dad, you know, he wants to protect that life. He just, you know, he's been told by the culture, you know, it's, it's not a man's choice. It's a decision between a woman and her doctor, but what they do is they'll just separate them for a minute while she's getting ready for the ultrasound because, you know, they need to check, you know, is there abuse? Is there coercion? You know, just like they do it, you know, in OBGYN's office, just to make sure that she's doing okay. And, um, and this is a good guy. Um, and so they separate him for just a couple minutes. And this man I was talking to, he just, he snags that young man and gets him in his office right across the, the hall from the ultrasound room. And he said, when the young man gets in there, a lot of times he's just, he's defeated because he's been, he's been told the lie, right? He's been told he has no voice. He's slumped over in his chair. He's depressed. He's, you know, what do I do? And I'm just here. I'm along for the ride. And so, um, and so this, this man, he counsels the young man, he, he shares with them their proper role in society, in the community, um, biblically, you know, what should they be doing? Should they be leading? Should they be, you know, really um, standing strong and standing up for their, for their new family, really? Um, and, and the young man will say, you know, you don't care about me. You just care about this baby. And the man I was talking to, he said, no, I care about you because I know if I get to you, if I get you where you need to be, you know, mentally and, you know, and emotionally and spiritually, then I get all three of you because you're going to lead that young woman. And the two of you together are going to raise this child 
or at least give this child life and hope. And that's going to transform the whole community. That's how we, we shift nations, right? And he said, by the time that young man leaves his office, so often, you know, their shoulders are back, they're upright, they're strong, they're ready. And so that's what we need. You know, that's, we need the encouragement. We need the counsel from our teachers, our coaches, absolutely our dads and our moms, but we need it from everyone around us. And unfortunately in our society, I think it's a broader issue where people just, um, they've been told, you know, take a back seat. It's all relative, you know, do what you want. And that's the wrong message. That's not how we build a strong next generation. When I think I heard someone saying this morning, one of the things that people on the political left try to do is they're trying to separate you from your identity in your religion. They're trying to separate you from your national identity. And now they're trying to separate you from your gender identity. And I don't mean the spectrum. I mean, either male or female and the roles that come in those types of things. The whole time you're talking, I'm like, gosh, this all sounds super bigoted, you know, telling men to be men and telling them to step up and, you know, stand up straight with their shoulders back as, as Jordan Peterson would say. Uh, but I, I love that. I love that. That that's a really good calling for a lot of men in a lot of churches right now that were caught flat-footed last Friday. I don't know exactly when this is going to come out, but they were caught flat-footed when the Dobbs decision came out and they're like, oh crap, we never thought this was going to happen. And now we got, we got to do something like, and that's the thing that's so funny is people talk about Planned Parenthood and how much they help women. Planned Parenthood isn't doing any of those things. They're not giving out diapers. They're not, you know, helping women with rent assistance or adoption services or any of those things. They're not doing any of that. It's always these Christian pregnancy resource centers. But I, I do want to make sure that we mention, uh, you know, the, the organization that you're representing now as president and CEO. That's the Americans United for Life. So that's AUL. And guys, uh, I'll have the website in the show notes so you can check that out because we're basically just going to be just barely scraping the surface on that stuff so we can get into everything else. But I found something that was very interesting from the AUL website. It says, AUL is the pioneer of the state-based model legislative strategy. Now, I know there's a whole lot that goes into that, and there's a whole lot that comes out on the back end of that, but I find that to be very, very interesting, especially now with what we see with the overturning of Roe and Casey. So talk to me a little bit about why that's kind of the AUL, the chosen strategy, if you will. Yeah, you know, we advance the human right to life in culture, law, and policy. And you're right, there's so much that goes into that. Um, we could talk about that alone for an hour straight. Um, but basically, what we are best known for, we work on the federal level, we work on state and local level, we, we do it all, but we're best known for our model bills. So we were the first national pro-life group. We were founded in 1971, two years before Roe even came out. And we were founded by a group of people, you know, diverse backgrounds and ages and beliefs and everything, but they just saw where the culture was going. They saw that that strength and that fortitude was failing us, um, that we weren't building a strong next generation. And, um, and they just said, you know what, we need to do what we can to come together, rebuild, protect women, protect, you know, protect those men, give men, you know, strength and choices and and so on and um, and protect those babies and so um they came together and so we have been involved in every supreme court case since and including roe um we filed briefs and and have defended life um we filed the members of congress brief in the last couple cases so hundreds and hundreds of members of congress signing on and saying you know supreme court we we believe the time is now. It is time to overturn Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey. And so we've seen um, we've seen a real shift. But one of the reasons why we've seen a shift in um, in our, our nation's laws and culture is because of state-based law. What we do is we draft model bills. We have 60 plus model bills. 
And they touch on a whole variety of issues. They touch on, you know, gestational age limits, on informed consent, making sure that women can see the ultrasounds that I wasn't allowed to, um, you know, waiting periods, all kinds of different things, chemical abortion, you name it, minors across state lines. Um, and then what we do is we can either, you know, we work with state lawmakers. They can just take that model bill and run with it, or we can work with them to help adapt it to their state. And then we help them pass it, we testify, we, you know, advise, all that kind of thing. We help defend it if the abortion industry, you know, tries to sue and come out against it. And we educate the public on the truth about abortion law and um, and abortion itself. And this is all critical. Yeah, Yeah, because, um, you know, without this, it was a law. It was a state law that got Roe overturned. It was a Mississippi law. It is exactly these kinds of laws that have saved millions of lives um, and millions of hearts, you know, millions of families over the last, you know, 49 years since Roe. Um, That's how we do it. We, you know, we influence culture in lots of different ways. But one of the ways that we can do it most clearly is through the law, because the law is a teacher. And, you know, if abortion had been illegal when I was 19 years old, I wouldn't have had an abortion. You mm-hmm. know, of course, you know, I'm not I'm not a lawbreaker. Um, but, you know, society tells you that it's OK, that it's legal. It's a clump of cells. It's a blob of tissue. All these lies um, that when you see the ultrasound, uh, you know the truth. Yeah, it absolutely changes everything. I know that there's, uh, I mean, early on, like episode six of this podcast, I talked about these mobile, um, you know, uh, ministries where they basically will show the women in ultrasound. It's a mobile ultrasound to where it's like, look, we will show you your baby for free, those types of things. And wouldn't you know, it's a bunch of Christians that fund that and started that as well. But we obviously have to get into June 24, 2022, where the decision for Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization was handed down. And so Dobbs was upheld uh, by a 6-3 decision. And most importantly, Roe v. Wade and and Parenthood v. Casey was overruled in a 5-4 decision. So Justice Roberts, you suck, you slimy coward. But I have, I guess, two questions from the very, very beginning is, what was your reaction to the Politico leak uh, that you know, of Alito's draft decision uh, that came out, you know, weeks before this decision, the official decision came down? And then obviously, what was your reaction on the announcement that Roe v. Casey are now on the trash heap of history? Yeah, um, when, when the draft opinion was leaked, um, I was actually up in Massachusetts. I was heading to the airport. I had a, a meeting up at Harvard. And I remember I just, I, I saw an update on my phone. I'm sure we all get these updates, these news articles or whatever. And, and you know, with what I do, they know to send me abortion related stuff. Right. And so I get this update and it says Supreme Court ready to overturn Roe. And so I hit the brakes. I pull over to the side of the road. I'm like, what is this headline? Cause we're, you know, at this point it's a couple months too early for this, this decision to come down. Like they could have, but chances were pretty slim. So I thought, what is going on? And, um, and I remember the, it, it was a mixed feeling. Um, I was overjoyed that we were in this position. I was overjoyed at the, um, the strength and the fortitude of Mississippi and of Mississippi attorney general Lynn Fitch, who, when the Supreme court took Um, took up the question. The Supreme Court, very few cases make it up there. And the cases that do, they decide what they're going to look at. And it's a tiny area of law, usually just very, very narrow. It can be, you know, whether this particular law or this word in this law applies to this, it's very narrow. 
you know, very um, just exact questions. And they had said that they were going to look at the question of whether any pre-viability, so pre, you know, 21-ish week um, restriction on abortion was constitutional, if that was even possible. So it's a pretty narrow question. Big implications, but um, but certainly less less broad than what ended up being um, being decided on June 24th. And so Mississippi and Attorney General Lynn Fitch there, they said, no, we're going to go ahead and brief the whole the whole thing. We're going to say, no, it's time to overturn Roe. It's time to overturn Casey. They made the argument that we'd been making in our in our amicus briefs for you know 49 years now. They said, you know, it was the state. It was the it was the actual party in the case that said that. And that was huge. And the justices listened. And for the first time in 49 years, um, an oral argument, they had actually gone through the whole history and tradition of abortion in America. Never been done before. Wasn't done in a row. Wasn't done in Casey or any of those other cases through the years. The, the court hears a case on abortion about every two, two and a half years or so. And there's always dozens of cases in the lower courts that are just making their way up the pipeline because it takes so long to, to get a case before the court. Um, and so, um, you know, it was, it was very brave of them. It was, it was time. Um, so when I saw that and I saw that the court was ready to really get to the heart of it and really examine the core issue, I was overjoyed. I was shocked and appalled that this had been leaked. I mean, what a, uh, what an invasion, um, what just a, a it, it goes against our entire process um, of, of protecting our justices and letting them, you know, do their job in a non-political way. I also think that the leak was a big mistake on the part of the left. I think that by leaking it early, they actually, you know, spread out and, and dissipated all that rage. They, they talked about mm-hmm. summer of rage and it was like, it was a hiccup. Um, and I think in large part, that's because they'd already, you know, they'd already spent all their energy. They'd already been all upset. And so on June 24th, you know, the decision comes down and, you know, I'm elated. My, my colleagues are elated. You know, there's people crying in front of the court just with mm-hmm. joy. Um, we are all just over the moon. Of course, our workload just tripled plus, right? Because mm-hmm. all of a sudden, all those state laws we're writing and passing that that's like, you know, expanded exponentially. But, um, but we're so happy about that. But, um, but it also, you know, the left was upset. The pro-abortion forces were upset, but they weren't as upset as they were with the leak because they'd already spread that all out. It was, um, it was a much tamer response. And, and there have been threats. There have been attacks. You know, I'm not minimizing that. It's been right. very serious. It's been criminal. It needs to be prosecuted. We need to investigate all that and prosecute it. It's been awful, but it's it's still not as much as it was. It's, it's already dying out. And, you know, if we continue to, to investigate and prosecute and crack down, I think it'll be over very soon. And we're going to see the dawn of a new America where we can actually support these young families, support these young men and women and empower them to choose life in a way that, you know, that we weren't really able to when the default answer for every unexpected pregnancy was abortion. Right. Uh, And I'm a fairly pessimistic guy. And so I still think it's to be determined what we're going to see. But I was more on the other side than than you, where I was like, oh, we just given all these crazy people a month to get all their ducks in a row and, you know, to have their bricks delivered to all these downtown areas and to buy extra bottles for Molotov cocktails. And we just haven't seen that yet. So I'm I'm happy whenever I'm wrong about something like that. But the the whole crux of our conversation today is not about what we're going to talk about uh, with uh, the Steve. The thing you went viral for, which we'll set up here in a second, but the the whole crux of what we're talking to now is Roe is dead. 
So now what? Because people are dumb. People had no idea what Roe v. Wade meant. They had no idea what it said. They had no idea that it was just returning the rights back to the people of their states to be able to make their voices heard, right? And so on both sides, not just on the left, but certainly on the right, people thought, oh, abortion's over now. It's like, read a book, please. Does anybody, does anybody pay attention to anything? Did you go to civics class? Do you even understand what you're saying? And so there's a lot that needs to be done. Obviously the people that listen to this show are well-versed on this issue because I've talked about it at nauseum at this point, but from your perspective, from AUL's perspective, you know, as an American, Roe is dead. Now what? Now the real, the real work begins at this point, we can finally, it was almost like there was a cap Right. Um, that would just it was capping off what we could do at the state level to protect life, to protect, you know, young women and men and families. There were limits because the court said, you know, you can't do this. You can't do that. This, you know, this is constitutional. And they made up all these tests, none of which made sense. You know, all these attorneys general and lawmakers are coming to us saying, what does this test even mean? The, the Supreme Court itself couldn't sort it out. They kept going back and forth. We saw it in, you know, in 2016 and 2020, we're seeing them back and forth trying to figure out what the test should be. Um, and even that viability line um, that this case was, you know, purportedly about, they came up with that in 1992 in Planned Parenthood v. Casey. It's a change from the row test. And the reason why they did, well, we don't really know why they did it um, because no one briefed them on that. No one asked for it. None of the parties said this is what the test should be. The court just basically looked at the issue and they said, well, you know, we don't know. Um, all the legal scholars are telling us that Roe is a bad decision and it's not really constitutional. So let's come up with something else and hope that that makes everyone happy. And it made no one happy. Right. So um, so at this point, the real work begins. You know, we are going to be more engaged than ever in the states. We've been here for 51 years. We've written, you know, uh, USA Today and Arizona Republic. They did a study where they actually went into every single pro-life law that had been passed and they analyzed the language. They said, is this an AUL model bill or not? And they found out that the vast majority of all the laws, even the ones where lawmakers just, you know, click on our website and, you know, grab the language and, you know, put it into law. Um, the vast majority were our bills. So now we have more than ever before more work. I mean, working in the states, continuing to defend life in the courts, also working at the federal level. You know, Congress, they're um, they're scheming and mm -hmm. and they've got some some people goading them into it. So they're you know trying to pass the so-called Women's Health Protection Act, which is not about health or protection and does nothing for women. It's just the, one of the worst named bills I've ever seen. I've testified against it. They're going to be trying to pass that. We're fighting back on that. We're going to be trying to pass good pro-life laws. We've already got, you know, now, now that Roe is gone, there is no pro-abortion federal policy in the U.S., and that is a victory. But, you know, there's these inroads they're trying to make. You know, we have hide protections to protect your taxpayer money. We have protections on you know, various things, you know, no abortion in federal facilities, things like that. But um, but we need to, to go further because human rights and human life should not be a piecemeal kind of a question. Like Lincoln said, we're going to be all one thing or all the other. And so, you know, eventually when we when we sort this out and the dust settles and people realize that pro-life policies are a good thing, it's not a loss, it's a victory for everyone. And, and now we can really resource these young families. 
You know, now we can go in and we can say, okay, it's time for a constitutional amendment. It's time to say that no abortion should be allowed. All life will be protected. And we're going to resource that like they did in Texas, like they've done in state after state where they say, you know, we don't want abortion. We want life affirming choices. We want real choice. We want to be giving those resources and that support Um, because most abortions, you know, first trimester all the way through late term, there are three major reasons why women seek abortion. And, you know, the abortion industry, they talk about, you know, health of the mother, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, rape and incest. Those aren't the reasons. That's a, a fraction of a fraction of cases. And those are hard issues that, you know, we need to get to the root of all that violence. We need to eradicate all the violence and not answer violence with more violence. But the three top reasons, they're financial issues, you know, not having enough money or feeling like you do, um, relationship problems, and, you know, not feeling ready to be a parent. And all of those, the good news is that all those are areas where we can come alongside a young woman and a young man, and we can help them. We can, you know, work them through those relationship issues. We can help them with resources and, you know, and get them connected with maybe a good job or training or whatever they need to be able to provide for their family. And we can help them feel ready. Yeah, the, the work certainly does not stop. I, I kind of told people, I was like, okay, Friday night, you know, open up a new bottle of whiskey like I did, fire up a cigar like I did. But Saturday morning, it's, it's time to get after it because this is the golden sacrament of the left. This is the golden sacrament of the secular humanists in this country. They want to make sure that they can kill babies and they're going to hide it behind things like feminism or women's rights, even though they can't define what a woman is, they're going to hide it behind all these different things. So the fight is not even close to being over, but I am glad that this has woken people up to this because there are people that thought that they were pro choice until they really started looking into the issue. Cause that's the thing is most people spend about 14 seconds thinking about every single topic on the planet. They don't do a deep dive into these things. They didn't know even what happens in an abortion. They don't know that a fraction of a fraction of a fraction are those hard cases that people love to put out in front of everybody. But I've set it up enough. We've got to talk about it. The reason why you came on my radar is because you scalped a Democrat House of Representatives member from Maryland named Jamie Raskin, okay? This was during a House committee on the judiciary uh, hearing called Revoking Your Rights, the Ongoing Crisis in Abortion Care Access. So before we go into the clip, just really, really quickly, most people don't know what any of those things mean. So let's set the scene. What are you doing there? Because you're on Capitol Hill. What's going on? Why are you there? Just briefly. Yeah, basically, I was there because of the leak, you know, the leak happens and um, and and the Democrats, they um, they they were panicking. They said, you know, hang on. All of a sudden, we're going to be held accountable. All of a sudden, um, all those people, because most Americans, whether they know it or not, they're pro-life. They support pro-life policy, even if they call themselves pro-choice. They just don't know what that means, like you said. And so. The Democrats, you know, our leadership, they're beyond radical on this issue. And so they said, hang on, you know, all of a sudden Roe may fall. So we just want to complain about the Supreme Court. That was really the purpose of the hearing. It was a show hearing to complain about the Supreme Court, to pressure the justices, to try to, you know, get little sound bites and and clips that they can use in their reelection campaigns. It was not about a bill at all. And it was not about anything real. It was just um, a wine session. And so they asked me, um, the Republicans asked me to be the pro-life witness. I was there. It was me and then three people on the abortion side, you know, an abortion doctor, an abortion activist, you know, these kinds of people, abortion lawyer. And, um, and so you give your little opening presentation, you get five minutes for that. And then they start asking you questions. So that sets the stage. 
Now, guys, I don't think we need to go into anything else. If you haven't seen this clip by now, I don't know where you've been hiding, but let's go ahead and go into the clip here. Is candidly and openly calling for a nationwide ban on all abortions with no exceptions for rape or incest. And if I've got that wrong, I would invite Ms. Foster to correct me. Do I have it wrong, yes or no? Um, if we added rape and incest exceptions, would you vote for it? Uh, okay, I reclaim my time, of course. Uh, okay, so, so that's the clip. And I just remember watching that, and there was something subtle that I saw. Um, as he's talking, but before you even ask your question, which basically owned him, right? You, you smirked. And I don't know if you, if you meant to, but like if, it were, if I was a poker player and you were across from me, that would have been my tell that you probably got aces in the hole or something like that. I, I knew that what was going to happen was probably going to happen. It was, it was so unbelievably subtle. And then you scalped them. So two questions. Number one, where do you keep the scalp in your house? Because it's got to be somewhere prominent. And number two, what was it like becoming a member of the Thug Life Club? <laughs> um, scalp is by the front door. Perfect. Um, yeah. Um, but it was, um, it was pretty incredible. You know, I, I did not realize that I was doing that. Um, I'm not bad at poker, you know, when I concentrate, I'm, I can, I can do it, but, um, but I started even as I was sitting there and, and by the way, this is like probably six hours or something into this hearing. I don't even know these hearings are an all day affair and you're just, you're sitting there, they're peppering you with questions, gotchas, whatever, you know, it's a, it's an intense experience, but I'm sitting there and, um, and he starts asking this question. I'm like, okay, guy, you know, how many times are you trying to, how many times have you tried to do this to try to, you know, to gotcha with the hard, hard cases when we know the truth and we know what you stand for. There has not been a single pro-life law, a single pro-life policy, not a single pro-life center that the abortion industry has ever supported. You know, they want to protect their bottom line. So um, even as I'm sitting there, I start getting, my phone, my phone starts blowing up with texts from friends, like you're about to get him. Like, I know that look, I've seen that look. Uh-oh, he's in for it. I'm like, okay. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, like, maybe it's the mom thing. I don't know. but. Um, but yeah, it, it was, um, it was just, you know, it was a simple question back, you know, none of that matters if it doesn't matter to you, you know, if you wouldn't vote for it, you know, with any kind of exception with, you know, let's say we bend, let's say we say, okay, we'll carve out some of those lives and we don't want to, you know, every life is precious and valuable and created in the image of God, but let's say we did, would you vote for it then? And we know the answer is no. There's no way. And so he he wasn't really prepped well enough. Probably he needed to, to know how to respond to that. Um, but he didn't. You know, he just he reclaimed his time and um, and cowered back and tried to move on. Well, preparation on his end, he would have never even set that up because that's there true. is no other way to go. This is a point A to point B type scenario. And that's when, you know, because I, I try to tell people and we'll get into the, how to equip uh, people to deal with these pro-abortion arguments. But that's some of the best work that we've done. Some of the most important work that we've done here at Undaunted Life is equipping people with questions to ask back to people that are asking you the questions. Because when someone asks you a question, you feel like you're on the defensive and you have to give an answer. Now, eventually you're going to have to give an answer, but there are probably two or three questions you should ask of that person to even know if the question is legitimate, if it's in good faith, because most of these people aren't doing that. They're trying to get the sound bite. They're trying to make you look bad. They're trying to make you look foolish. And the reality is, is if you step back even just half a step and fire a, you know, good hearted, 
good faith question back at them, they can't answer it honestly. So right now, the Democratic National uh, Convention, like the DNC, their stated position on abortion is abortion up until the moment of birth for any reason whatsoever and taxpayer funded. And then you have states like California that are trying to push that into the perinatal period, which is up to 28 days after birth. Right. And there's some you know, consternation as to whether or not that's true or something like that. But that's where you're getting into the infanticide category. But when you ask a prominent Democrat about that directly and say, sir or ma'am, are you OK with abortion up until the moment of birth for any reason whatsoever? Also pushing into the perinatal period. Then they just start pulling out random bumper stickers and Planned Parenthood T-shirts and like trying to distract you. Hey, look at this shiny thing over here. Uh, so it, it's just absolutely crazy. So I'm so glad that you hit them with that. But talk to me about what happened afterwards, because obviously this clip went, went viral. It's been seen millions of times. We shared it around. Everybody shared it around. And I know there were a lot of people that were not aware of Catherine Glenn, Glenn Foster or AUL. So what has kind of like the after effect, the aftershock been of this moment. Yeah. You know, so much of our work has been behind the scenes. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, half of us are lawyers, half are educators, but half are lawyers. And, and so we're not, you know, looking for the spotlight We're you know, we're just doing our job. We're drafting the bills. We're working with the lawmakers. We're defending the, you know, we're in courts, um, not in, you know, not in Hollywood. Um, So it's been, um, it's been a unique experience to have that, to have that shift. Um, it's been, I mean, honestly, an honor, you know, so many people have just wanted to hear more. So many people have been talking about abortion, um, in a way that they haven't been before. And they've been really empowered to start asking those questions and, and to respond with those, you know, questions in a loving way, in a humble way, but to say, you know, let's, let's get to the truth of this. Let's, let's dispense with these red herrings. Let's, let's get to the truth of what we're really talking about. And, um, and that's how we can, you know, that's how we can make progress. That's how we can really make inroads for life. Well, the day that that happened was the day I reached out to your team because I was like, we need to get her on now, right now, today. So I'm glad we were able to make this happen. And I'm sure we'll have you on later when we can have some more time because I do want to get into the way that you would frame as a lawyer, because I'm not a lawyer, I'm not that smart, like the way that you would frame some of these reactions to pro-abortion arguments. But there is one thing that I want to ask about because this is this, this subject matter creates even consternation in the pro-life community. And that's the criminalization of all abortions and all people involved with the abortion. Because my understanding is that there is not a state in the union right now that has a law that would criminalize the woman or that is seeking an abortion for herself or the woman's family that is paying for it or pushing her in that direction or the boyfriend or the the husband or the whoever that's pushing that person. The only person that they're even feigning to criminalize is the doctor. And so where I come from, and I bring this up every time is like, if I were to hire a hitman to kill my wife, which I would never do, I'm just using it as a internal inside my house example. If that guy kills my wife and gets caught and then points at me as the guy that did it. And one of my other buddies drove him there. The guy that killed her, me and my buddy that drove her, we all go down for murder. Every last one of us, not the one that pulled the trigger, not just the one that pulled the trigger. But man, that makes people in the pro-life space really, really uncomfortable because we treat women as an additional victim. When we see an overwhelming majority of evidence that shows that a lot of these women aren't actually victims of their circumstances. And even if you're like, when has an ignorance to a law or to a reality been, you know, the reason why you get out of, you know, jail free kind of a deal. So you talk to me a little bit about what that looks like, because I'm for full criminalization of every single person in the process, but you've done this a lot longer than me. So go. 
Yeah, you know, I hear a lot about that. Um, and I, I understand your perspective. Um, you know, we've done the research, we know the history. And in America, we do not have a history of criminalizing the woman involved. Now, of course, a lot of these abortions are repeat abortions. You know, some of them, you know, you get one abortion, you harden your heart, you tell yourself it was okay. Um, you know, you're you're damaged, if you will. Um, you know, it was, it's, it's frequently a painful experience. And a lot of times the, the abortion activists we see out there, it's because, you know, they have an abortion in their past and they're just trying to justify it any way they can, because it is a very, a deep, but a very painful experience for them. Um, you know, in the past, in America, decades, centuries past, uh, we did not criminalize the woman because the lawmakers recognized that the woman was a second victim, a victim of the industry, a victim of the lies, a victim of, you know, a lot of a huge percentage of abortions are the result of, um, of pressure, of coercion, you know, not always from the young man involved. A lot of times he may want that child, but he doesn't know how to speak up. But, you know, maybe it's her parents, maybe it's a sibling or a friend or someone else. Um, and it's the product of a culture where she's told and a a legal system where she's told that that's okay. And that's the default answer, which it shouldn't be. Um, also, um, it's really interesting. In fact, it was the abortion industry that did want women prosecuted. The reason is because if you have the, the woman who's being um, prosecuted as well, then she has an incentive to try to cover it up, to lie, to whatever, to try to hide that pain and push it even deeper. And then that creates more of that cycle of hurt, which can, you know, go on for, you know, years, decades, generations, even. So, um, so they wanted to, to shield themselves by getting the woman prosecuted too. Whereas the prosecutors, they say, no, we need the woman to come and testify against, uh, against this abortionist. Um, so that's part of it. Um, but I think overall, we do need to rethink our entire system and how we, how we address it. So I actually wrote a white paper um, that gets into how to deal with that punishment phase and even what, you know, what an abortion trial should look like. And we have models in our country that work, you know, models or at least work as, as well as they can. We can always try to make them better, but models like a family court or a drug court where you're looking um, a more holistic perspective, you look at everyone involved because everyone involved in many cases everyone's impacted and a lot of different folks have some culpability. You know, we can't completely shield and absolve people um, just because of, you know, of the lie or what, or whatever it may be. And so um, in a lot of ways, I think we do need to, um, we need to look at everyone, you know, that's what a real justice system would do. And so we look at, um, at what everyone needs to, um, to make amends for that wrong and to make sure that it doesn't get repeated going forward, dealing with that recidivism issue that you're talking about, that should never be happening. Um, and so in that white paper, I get into exactly that issue. You know, what should happen with the woman? What should happen with the partner, you know, the boyfriend, the husband, the whoever, um, you know, what should happen with certainly the abortion doctor, the abortionist and the staff and everyone over there. But maybe, you know, are there parents involved? Are there siblings or friends? Uh, you know, what was the school doing? What's the school, you know, or the, the place of business? Are they pushing abortion like Citibank? 
Or are they, you know, are they trying to say here, here's what would happen with your classes. Here's what would happen with, um, with your meal plan and your housing plan. And so all of these, all of these institutions and people, um, they're all impacted. They all had, you know, potentially a role to play and that should be examined. And we should have, you know, some kind of way to say, you need to have a plan for when a young woman on your campus gets pregnant. You know, we don't want it to happen, but you know, it may happen. You know, you need to um, to go get counseling for the fact that, you know, that you just had an abortion, you know, is the answer to throw her in jail? Maybe not. But does she need to, you know, have a clear path set out for her and, you know, some kind of accountability, you know, that that's definitely on the table and that's laid out in our white paper. So I hate using the word nuance because that's a word that dumb people use to sound smart, but it is a nuanced issue. And I'll, I'll make sure that we get that white paper and put that in the show notes, guys, so that you can check that out. But I, I guess my argument there before we just kind of move on is, I mean, earlier in this, this podcast, you said that you're not a lawbreaker. If it had been illegal, you wouldn't have done it. And so if everyone involved knows that their head is potentially on the chopping block if they go through and kill this baby, I think that would save even more children. So, so that's kind of my argument on it. And at the end of the day, it's like th- that, that has to be the standard because if I influence some seven-year-old kid and I like, you know, get after him for weeks and weeks and weeks, telling him to kill someone, you got to kill someone. I swear to you, here's a gun. Why would you go kill somebody? And then he goes and kills somebody. Or well, let's say he's 18. Like he's, he's above the age of reason or whatever the situation is like, we're both going to go down for that, like in some way, shape or form, but them mainly because they're the one that made the choice to do that. But, but again, I, I haven't read the white paper, so I need to dig in that to myself so I can look a little bit more in the arguments, but in the, in the last, you know, 15 minutes or so that we have here together, I want to get into some of the pro-abortion arguments that we hear. So I've done stuff before where I've shown guys how to engage, you know, 15, 16, 17 different of the main pro-abortion arguments. Here are the questions you should ask. Here are the things that you should say in response. But I've got like 10 of them here in front of me. And let's just see how many of these that we can get through. Like, let's just try to go rapid fire, see how many we can get through. So just equip the men that are listening to this with some things from your perspective and your experience. So how would you respond to someone saying it's not a human life? It's a potential life. It's just a clump of cells. It is literally a human being. Um, science is clear across the board on that. Look at any embryology textbook. Um, it is only the most radical abortion activists who legitimately try to argue that this is not a human being. What else is it? It's not a dog. It's, you know, it's a living creature that, you know, without some kind of intervention is going to grow and become, you know, someone who looks just like you or me. Right. And so like, I love how Ben Shapiro puts it. It's not a potential human life. It's a human life with potential. Uh, yeah. And so that kind of feeds into the next thing, which is, you know, they, they do one of two things. They usually go from one to the other, but they'll say it's not a person until it's viable, or they'll say it's not a person until it's born. So how do you deal with the viability and the it's born arguments? Yeah, it makes no sense to try to to create some artificial moment in time where all of a sudden you get human rights. You get human rights by virtue of your existence as a human being, mm-hmm. you know, human rights for all human beings. And uh, there's actually a funny video out there. Um, it's uh, just, you know, if you Google magical birth canal, it um, it sounds like you shouldn't Google it, but <laughs> it, it's good. Um, and it's just this satire video. Um, you know, like, uh, okay, you know, it's some magical point, you become human, Um, you're human from fertilization, you know, and, uh, and that's that. Yeah, it's a living human, no one's surprised 
when a baby comes out and, and not a Volkswagen or not a cactus or something like that. We're like, we're not shocked. We know it's a living human person. And again, like, it's like, does the vaginal canal confer personhood? Is that, is that the argument you're trying to make? Like, does the technology in a particular area, which affects the viability standard and number, because in some areas, a 21 week old of gestation baby is not going to survive, but in some areas they do. So does the technology in an area confer personhood? Like, is that really, really the argument? It just seems silly. Another Exactly. One and I would just really quickly, if I could add. Yeah. Um, so, you know, when you're looking at viability, that never made any sense as a standard because viability, even right now, it's a set of probabilities, you know, at 20 weeks, you have this probability of survival, 21 weeks, another probability, 22 weeks, another. And so you're hinging a legal test, a legal right based on a probability at different weeks. You know, mm. it's not guaranteed at any gestational age. Um, it's not really guaranteed to any of us. So why, why would they, you know, try to try to make up some random line that shifts um, based on our medical advances that shifts based on on our medical access, you know, different areas. Uh, it, it, it's nonsensical. I agree. Next one that a lot of people get into is, you know, and this is a big one now because of the overturning of Roe, but what if abortion is necessary to save the life or health of the mother? Like, come on, have a heart. Not an abortion. Yeah. An abortion is the intentional killing, um, direct killing of a human being. And that's not an abortion. Now there may be times when to save the life of the mother, um, you know, there may be the need to deliver the child early. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe the mother has to have radiation. You know, you're looking at her, you know, her three, her five other children, and you're thinking, you know, of course we want to protect her life. Um, but that is not an abortion. That is a medical intervention. And you view it as having two patients, not just one. You're never going in intentionally trying to kill that child. If you walk into the room as a doctor and you're thinking, do no harm, and you recognize that there are two human beings in this situation, you try to care for both of them. And again, we've, we've seen instances where women have had wombs taken out of their stomachs, set to the side. They've gotten treatment on whatever was going wrong in their abdomen, and the baby was put back and they were sewn up. So this idea that women are just going to be dropping like flies, it's just propaganda at this point. But another one, this is my personal favorite because I just giggle uh, you know, uncontrollably when I hear it. No uterus, no opinion. This would be the first human rights issue. And I think the history of the world where we said that 50% of the population had no voice. Are you kidding me? You know, men are made to be leaders. Men are made to have that voice and to to lead the way um, and set the standard and to say that we don't want your voice. um, That's part of the lie that's led to um, to legalized abortion, trying to to cut the man out of it, trying to cut that protection out of it. Um, That needs to end. Well, and again, it's like, well, you don't actually disagree with my opinion as a man. You disagree with men that think like I do because there are tens of millions of women that think the way that I do. What about them? What if I identified as a man for the remainder of this conversation? Do I get to have an opinion then? Because again, you're attacking a worldview and they sure didn't mind it when seven white men decided the Roe decision about 50 years ago. They didn't mind that too much. I guess the fact that they didn't have a uterus uh, didn't matter in that particular thing. Now, this That's next exactly one is- exactly right. Yeah, yeah. The, these bro choicers we call them, um, they are just the worst. Uh, they come out and they get very aggressive, you know, defending abortion rights. In fact, I just saw an article a few weeks ago written by one of those bro choicers and he um and he was saying you know here's how losing roe v wade would impact me and my sex life and like okay first of all we get it we know what your concern is right 
bro choicers is probably the funniest thing. I've never heard that before. That needs to be a t-shirt. But second of all, and this, I'll try to, you know, say this without being too crass. A lot of these male feminists or bro choicers, these are people that are, they themselves are trying to have their sexual uh, lives improved in some way. And they think that is their track to doing that. Like, look how woke I am. Look how much I support you. Will you date me now? Like, it's kind of, it's a weird, like junior high type thing. It's crazy. But this next one, this one is the common one that we saw. This is the easy one, easiest one to put on a t-shirt or on a sign that you hold up my body, my choice. So how would you respond to that? It's not your body. It's, it's so simple. It's not your body. Remember it's a human being. Um, it's not your, it's two bodies involved. It's, it's so simple. And yet they come up with these slogans. They're very good at coming up with slogans. They spend a lot of money hiring marketing firms to come up with these slogans and it's very chantable. Um, sadly it's wrong. Um, so you can put it on a sign, but it's absolutely inaccurate. And they're just hoping that if they repeat it enough, that people will start to believe it and people will remember it. And, um, and we, we know better than that. Well, and people are dumb. And that's the thing that these, these companies know is that if you do repeat it long enough, people are like, oh yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. Okay. And then they're going to go get their McDonald's and go on with all their other terrible life decisions. Now in this podcast, we've already talked about the response to cases of rape and incest. I don't think we need to spend too much more time on that. And then also pro-lifers only care about the baby before it's born. Like that's obviously nonsense because all these pregnancy resource centers, they don't stop treating these women and caring for these women the day they have birth, obviously. And almost all of these places were founded for and paid for by Christians and Christian money, if you can, you know, couch it that way. So I, I think we can move past that as well. But another one providing diapers and baby formula for after the baby is born. Exactly. And, and church is coming together to get that woman a car to make sure she has a way to get back and forth. You know, business owners in the area, making sure she has a job. Almost all these people are coming from the Christian church. I don't want to hear that nonsense. So, but another thing we, we hear is that even if the unwanted baby is taken to term and born, there wouldn't be a family available to adopt it. So obviously it's better to kill this baby than to have it in the foster care system. So what would you say to that? Yeah, um, it is so offensive when people say that our worth is dependent on our circumstances. Um, I think about all the people I know who are adopted or we're in the foster care system and, you know, and, and we need to we need to improve it. No argument there. But let's get to the heart of the problem and work to, you know, to improve it instead of just saying, well, it's better to be, you know, you're better off dead. That is incorrect. And it's um, it's offensive. It's it's unchristian. It's um, it's inhumane. Uh, what we need to do is get to the heart of all the violence, all the problems and solve them from the inside out instead of just bandaging over them and um, and saying that that our worth is dependent on our circumstances, on where we find ourselves, on the family we happen to be born into. I know a lot of people who'd rather be born into a different family, and that doesn't make them any less human. Well, and what they're arguing inherently is that it's better to be dead than to be poor. It's better to be dead than to be in the foster care system. It's better to be dead than it is to be adopted. And I just had a friend reach out to me. I won't use his name because uh, it's confidential, but someone that that was close to him, she was like, I was going to get an abortion, but uh, uh, because the baby inside me is, is not going to live. Like the doctors told me the baby's not going to live. It's, you know, if it lives outside the womb and only live for a short period, that the baby's just going to be suffering the whole time. But then the Dobbs decision came down and now they're, they're not allowing me to get this abortion because the state I'm in and blah, blah. And isn't this such a horrible situation? But the way that I explained it to this guy is like, that baby has a right to live. 
Like, you know, because think about what you're saying. Like, what if it was a seven-year-old outside the womb and it was having a bunch of seizures or had some sort of a terminal illness? Would it be okay with you if I went up and slit that baby's throat or that seven-year-old's throat at that point? Like, bleed them out, you know, as quickly as possible. Give them a humane death. You would look at me like I had a boob on the top of my head. Like, that's the craziest thing you've ever said in your entire life. Like, but that's where these people get to. Like, do you hear a lot of stuff like that now? Kind of these, these hard cases now that Dobbs has come down? Yeah, I mean, sickeningly, some people actually argue for that because we're full spectrum. We go all the way to natural death. And so, you know, we deal with euthanasia. We deal with all those issues as well. And we're having to fight that argument. Um, but, you know, when it comes to um, to a prenatal diagnosis, number one, a lot of those are wrong. So you exactly. can't you can't bank on that. Mm-hmm. So do you really want to end a life? Um, and then find out later that the diagnosis was wrong entirely. Second, let's say it's right. There are resources out there and not everyone's aware. You know, that's part of the, the thing. We need awareness, but we have resources like perinatal hospice. We have plans in place that are life affirming that allow you to have, you know, a peaceful goodbye. We're not talking about a, a suffering child. They're just, that's propaganda. They're trying to, to sway you at that point because they don't want to provide the care. They don't want to, you know, whatever. But, um, but we have ways to, um, to just have that time together and give that child um, the best possible, even if it's short life, but the best possible life and any kind of argument, you know, you're better off dead than poor, better off dead than, you know, than disabled or anything like that. That's just echoing the words of Planned Parenthood's founder, uh, Margaret Sanger, who was this noted eugenicist mm-hmm. who was known for her just terrible views that um, they've tried to rehabilitate her a little bit because they like her stance on uh, on Planned Parenthood and, and birth control. Even she didn't support abortion. Even she didn't. And so, um, you know, we need to we need to, to get to the heart of human rights and make sure that we're recognizing um, that we all have them. You know, no matter if we're poor, no matter, you know, if we have some kind of diagnosis or whatever we deserve, we have fundamentally just by nature of our um, uh, of our existence as human beings, um, you know, created by God, rational human beings. We have a human right to life. Absolutely. And I I love the point you made about doctors because obviously doctors can get things wrong. I think every single year in the U.S. in the top five or six of uh, causes of death in the U.S. are mistakes by doctors. So this can be a prescription they've done, a surgery mistake, like all these different things. And it's like, I get it. We're supposed to trust these people, but it's like, can we trust but but verify? Did you get a second opinion on this? Because one guy or gal in a white coat walks into your room and says, yeah, the baby's definitely suffering in there. We should kill it. And you just go, okay. And you just kind of move that direction. So we should always question these people, even if they seem superior to us. But Catherine, I really appreciate all the time that you've given us today. We've covered a, a lot of ground here, but as of for now, that is all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? Nope. I am just so glad that you're Uh, out here talking about it, that you're out here encouraging men um, to talk about it, to stand strong in their families and in their communities. That is exactly what we need to shift the culture for life in America. I agree. Catherine Glenn Foster, thank you for coming on Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Thank you. There you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Catherine Glenn Foster. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So here are the links I've got for you today. I got a link to the Americans United for Life website. I've also got a link to the clip of her basically destroying Representative Jamie Raskin. That is here. I've also got a link to a YouTube video that gives you a little bit of information as to Catherine's story. She talked about a little bit of it today, but it's kind of a summarized version. And also, she mentioned a specific white paper in the episode. 
I just sent you a link with all of AUL's white papers because I thought that a lot of them were fantastic and would be good resources for you so you guys can check those out there. All right, thank you guys so much for listening to the show. We do appreciate it wherever you're listening to this. Please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak at your event or live on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is our song Cutting the Tides, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album Leveler. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah. Judah.